another Indiana anti-abortion law is halted by a federal judge. Voucher students' performance is at best a mixed bag. That plus healthcare protests and more on Indiana Week in Review for the week ending June 30th, 2017. Ice Miller is proud to support Indiana Week in Review. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. This week, a federal judge stopped key parts of the state's new anti-abortion law from taking effect. Federal Judge Sarah Evans Barker halted three provisions of Indiana's 2017 anti-abortion law. One dealt with parental notification of minors seeking a court's consent for an abortion. Another imposed new requirements on parents who give consent. And the third barred anyone from informing minors of their abortion options outside of Indiana. Judge Barker, a Reagan appointee, said the first provision created an undue burden on young women seeking abortions, the second was too vague to enforce, and the third violated the First Amendment. Indiana Right to Life decries the ruling and blames Barker, who Right to Life calls a liberal activist judge. This is the fifth time in seven years a judge has struck down Indiana abortion legislation. Are we in Groundhog Day? It's the first question for our Indiana Week in Review panel. Democrat Mike Leppert. Republican Mike O'Brien, John Schwannis, the host of Indiana Lawmakers, and John Katzenberger, president of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. I'm Indiana Public Broadcasting State House reporter Brandon Smith. Mike O'Brien, passing these laws obviously serves Republican lawmakers well with their base, or at least part of their base. But is it a good thing for the state that they have to continue that they continue crafting unconstitutional measures? I think it's a good thing for the state that they were trying to address what is a real issue, which is these children, really, um, who are facing this situation, this unwanted pregnancy, and may get an abortion and may have to go it alone. Um, you'll, if you'll, you'll recall during the legislative session, um, Republicans really struggle with this. Pro-life Republicans struggle with it. Moderate Republicans struggle with it because they were trying to address what's a real issue and do it in a way that they, they hope would pass constitutional muster. The first step of this hasn't worked out. We'll see if it works its way through the, uh, through the appeals process. But the underlying motivation for this wasn't to appeal to the base. It was to try to address what is actually a real issue. Do you think... <laughs> you don't think... Uh, you think it was to appeal to the base? Don't let my smile interrupt <laughs> you, Brandon. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I wanted to ask this. Do you think at any point any of these rulings will deter lawmakers from taking this step seemingly year after year? I don't know if the rulings will. Um, the, the blowback that you get from failing... Um, and, and struggling with it is a struggle. It's a self-imposed wound. There's no reason to bring the, to bring the, the issue. Uh, it's not a problem that, that needed to be addressed. And so the, the problem was created and then addressed, and, and the problem and the challenge that Mike's talking about is trying to find a way to pass a law that doesn't need to be passed. And, and that does get tough when you have a constitutional or a constitution hanging over your head that, that gives states guidance on this issue. We have... Uh, a law of the land that's in place. This this was going to be a struggle from the start, and I saw them wrangle as well. We we watched it, but uh, the fact of the matter is, it didn't need to be there. We need to start paying attention to what the Constitution says, what Roe v. Wade says, what the law of the land is, and also for Republicans, they need to start paying attention to their members. Uh, they're losing plenty of members each year. That is eroding the base probably more than anything else. Uh, the, the women of the caucus are starting to vote against it, and the, the five men sitting on this panel right now are probably not going to be very convincing to the women who are running from these bills every year, but each year it erodes a little bit further on that, and my advice to them would be to 
walk away, walk away as quickly as possible. Election results notwithstanding, of course. Well, but he points out, of the women of the House uh, Republican Caucus, only one woman who actually sponsored the bill uh, voted for it this time around. Do you think we're starting to see a move away, or this is well, just going to keep happening? I think, you know, to Mike's point, um, it's important to remember that elections are lagging indicators, not leading indicators. And I think that Mike Leppard's point about the, you know, the gradual erosion, um, you don't notice that it right away. But when you do see uh, the majority of women in the Republican, the majority of Republican women in the General Assembly uh, against this particular bill, uh, you see the struggle that we saw during the, the debate in the, in the General Assembly, and now you see yet another bill that's been, a uh, law that's been struck down, or at least I shouldn't say struck down, has been enjoined Halted, for the right. time being. Um, I think that that's a valid point. I think that there are some, you know, there are a lot of practical and moral considerations involved here. But I think there's some real political considerations, and I think that the Republicans uh, might want to give the abortion issue uh, a rest if they don't want to, you know, have a problem, not necessarily next cycle, but the cycle after that or the cycle after that, because um, they are gradually uh, losing on this issue, and I think that that's important to pay attention to. Do you think there's, do you think there's political benefit for Brian Bosma maybe keeping these bills off of his floor? I think for Brian Bosma and leadership, his counterparts in the Senate, there probably is value in keeping them off the floor for a couple of reasons. There are some practical reasons. They take up time and oxygen that could be spent on other issues. We saw that this past session. Keep in mind that, that the, uh, the bill we're talking about now and that went before the court was probably the least onerous of the anti-abortion proposals that were considered in this, in this session that concluded a few months back. You had some that required physicians to make statements about medications that, that the medical community said mm, may not actually uh, be, be quite true. the way you're describing right. it. Uh, there were some outright bans, you know, uh, that went farther than any other state in the country uh, had they been enacted. And I think you saw at the time there was a desire on the part of leadership to address, we hear, how many times did we hear, we're, talk, we're here to talk about infrastructure, we're here to talk about education, education. and tax issues. Well, but largely that's what it is. But and you have to, but it does take up a lot of the But it does take up, because those are the, well, those are the issues session. that tend to get people riled up. Uh, I so I think the lawyers in the House, you know, the General Assembly doesn't have many lawyers uh, anymore, which is probably, I may be crucified for saying this, <laughs> but that's a bad thing. I actually think we need more attorneys in, in the House and Senate. Uh, they get it. They understand that this is an uphill battle. It may help with some solidification of the base or some fundraising. But the vast majority of the uh, representatives and senators in our state are not attorneys, and I think they're willing to uh, fight the fight year after year. Yeah. Results were released this week of the first ever in-depth study of Indiana's school voucher program. Notre Dame and Kentucky researchers found that students who used vouchers to move from public school to private school and remained there for four years improved to match or outperform their public school peers in English. But for math, the study found students lost ground academically in the first two years in a private school before just catching up to the public school student level of academic growth. Both critics and champions of the controversial program used the results to back their pre-existing ideas of whether private school vouchers benefit students who leave public schools. Mike Lepper, what impact should this study have on the voucher debate in Indiana? 
Well, if people are paying attention, uh, it, it should have a big one. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is, if, if we knew ahead of time that this were, were the kind of results that the state would get from taking the aggressive stance that we have as a state in vouchers, would we have done it? Uh, $146 million a year for, uh, you know, as your report uh, stated, for a wash. Uh, that's $146 million wasted dollars, in my opinion, and that's before you start talking about the diversion from the public education system. Uh, there's, there's not, uh, you know, spin, spinning and messaging apart, uh, aside, there's, uh, there's not a good cost-benefit case to be made that we should continue to, to throw this money away and divert it from our public education system to, to argue whether or not we're making any progress at all. And so you have to start asking, your, asking the questions of who's benefiting from the program because students aren't. And if students aren't, why are we spending $146 million a year on the program? That's the best part about the whole school choice debate. Unlike the public school debate, they ask, is it working? They measure the results. They measure what, how, what money is being spent, what results you're getting out of it. So if a charter school isn't performing, it gets shut down. In this debate, if you, wa if you take away the I-STEP numbers that they looked at, which was, it was kind of a two-dimensional review right, of, a, of that <clears> data, what it found was, over, if, you, if you wash that out and just look generally, it, it said students who have a voucher in a private school do better. They do better in English. Maybe math's a wash. Maybe not. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think they should look closer. I think we should look as closely at p public school outcomes as we are at, at, at vouchers and school choice. And, and apply a price for, for every, every grade, every, every inch, every percentage point that we get. And, and that price, that payoff, that return on the investment would be dismal. It would be absolutely dismal. That's what the study says. Do you think this will have a measurable impact come next session? Uh, my sense is that uh, the way that you can read this, these numbers, there's a little something in there for everyone. It's, one, it's like the poll, you know, there's statistics. Yeah, all uh, sides to Lies, damn lies. Right. Yeah, it, whoever, uh, my apologies to <laughs> Mark Twain. It's, uh, <laughs> there is something there for everyone. You can find evidence to argue, argue your point. And in a way, Brandon, I think it's almost as if we could say the answer to the last question, will people be, lawmakers be dissuaded by court action, in that case from seeking additional abortion legislation? I'd say the true believers, whether it's abortion or school choice, true believers results true be damned. Believers, yeah. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to do this. And as far as accountability, you know, it's, it's uh, a lot of the champions of, of vouchers have bristled at how much accountability is there and have made attempts to, to dial that back to a certain extent. Um, so it's not as if they have all welcomed uh, the kind of scrutiny that they've gotten. And some actually would, uh, some people on the other side of the aisle would like to see more scrutiny in terms of uh, the licensure of these operations. Mike Lepper talked about for what could be viewed as a wash at best um, for the performance of these students, private versus public. You're spending $146 million and it's going to go up in these next two biennia. But let me ask this then they aren't paying the exact same amount as they are for a public school student. It's only 90% of the funding that you would spend on a public school student in a public school. So are you actually, if it's just a wash, are you actually helping yourself because you're spending a little bit less than you would have if they were in a public school? You know, I think in favor of your point is that we're talking about such large numbers when it comes to school funding that, it, you know, a 10% difference is, is very large. Um, but I think uh, we have to be careful when we try to make a cost-benefit analysis of uh, education outcomes in the state. Uh, none of us here are the same. None of us learn the same way. Uh, and none of us had the same experience in school, and that's just five of us. There are thousands and thousands of kids in school 
all the time. Uh, we need to study outcomes. We need to measure how uh, students are doing, and I think that's good. But to throw a cost-benefit analysis into this is dangerous, and I think it's also um, misguided because um, I think when you look at the Constitution, we agreed in 1851 that education was important for the rest of the state to go forward. And we've placed a premium on that by, by using more than 50% of every dollar that is raised is spent on K-12 education. Um, we need to get this right. Um, it's good to have the debate. But I think when we start saying that there's a, a cost-benefit, um, we, we are losing sight of what's truly important, and that is trying to ensure that all of the kids get an opportunity to learn whether they have disabilities, whether they are from a disadvantaged background, or whether they're from the wealthiest family in the state. Time now for viewer feedback. Each week we pose an unscientific online poll question in conjunction with our Ice Miller email and text alerts. This week's question, is voucher student performance as good or better in English, not as good in math, positive or negative for the program overall? A, positive, B, negative, or C, inconclusive? Last week's question, what's to blame for large insurers leaving Indiana's Affordable Care Act marketplace? 29% said it's the Affordable Care Act's flaws. 64% said it's federal Republicans sabotaging the program. And 7% blame something else. If you would like to take part in the poll, go to wfyi.org slash iwir and look for the poll. Well, protests this week around the country and in Indiana focused on the Senate health care reform bill. Here in Indiana, there were protests this week targeting Republican Senator Todd Young, who's still undecided on the bill. One rally turned ugly when a woman was taken to the hospital after she says U.S. Marshals dragged her out of a protest at Young's office. A disability rights advocate with a bad knee says her group had been welcomed into Young's office in the federal courthouse in Indianapolis before Marshals forcefully removed them, injuring her knee in the process. A spokesperson for the Marshals said officials asked the protesters several times to, quote, cease their disorderly conduct. When they didn't obey, Marshals, quote, peacefully escorted the individuals out of the courthouse. A young spokesperson says the protesters were being loud and disruptive. John Schwannis, many of these particular protesters were in wheelchairs. Who does this look bad for? Uh, I think most people would agree that it looks bad when you forcibly remove uh, people with disabilities, people in wheelchairs and so forth. Uh, and the optics are bad. And that's why the protest is taking place, I'm sure. Uh, if you get a bunch of able-bodied people in there, younger people, chanting, yeah, they may have some impact, but it's not going to garner visually, the same yeah. results visually. So from the standpoint of accomplishing what the protesters want to accomplish, and from the optics of it, yeah, you want to bring people in there who, who are disabled and who depend uh, heavily, at least uh, as they have indicated, on the benefits that they derive from uh, the Affordable Care Act and from Medicare and Medicaid. The protesters said they were welcomed into Young's office and then the marshals removed them. A Young spokesperson did say that they were being loud and disruptive. Do you think, the, do you think this ends up looking bad for Todd Young or does it look bad for the U.S. Marshals? I think in the, in the first pass here it makes the marshals look like uh, the bad guy here because they're the ones that take them out and, and uh, remove them. Um, you know, I think Senator Young, uh, the statement uh, by his spokesperson afterwards 
uh, was kind of mixed. You know, we, we had them come in, uh, but they were getting loud and disruptive, so we wanted them to be removed. Um, I think Senator Young is probably going to refine that message uh, as he goes forward. Do you think this will have any measurable impact on the debate here as we, over the next couple of weeks, presumably get to a vote? I, I think it's a continuation of, of the sentiment that's out there. The, the town halls that have been going on since uh, the beginning of the year are, uh, seem to have the same sort of uh, level of enthusiasm. Um, and it's another day. It's another day in the chapter of, of, of the public outcry about what's going on in Washington. I think that uh, one of the things that's been frustrating for the past six months is that sometimes when people feel the desire to protest, our public officials need to, need to sit there and take it. You know, show up and let them get what's on their mind off, you know, off their chest and listen to it. I, you know, I've been a public official and people are angry and, and, and there's, no, there's no shouting them down and, and it, doesn't, it, it doesn't, make any, uh, doesn't make any difference whether, in my opinion, whether or not they have a disability or not. If they've, if they've fought their way into the federal building, which isn't the easiest building in town to get into, by the way, <laughs> no. um, they've earned my respect. I'm going to sit there and listen to them. And I think that, that John's right. Senator Young is probably going to refine that message and approach in the coming weeks and months. To the point that this is, that, that Young's office here in Indianapolis is in the federal courthouse building, um, which is not your average uh, building downtown, do you think that actually helps thing, make things look a little better for Todd Young, that th this isn't your average building, this is the U.S. Marshals are under control and all of that? I don't know. I mean, it's sure. But, <laughs> I mean, the bottom line in this is that the, the rhetoric around this is so amped up that you've got Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and all these guys, the Democrats at the national level, saying that tens of millions of Americans are going to be killed if this bill passes which is absurd. We weren't killing people before Obamacare passed. We're not killing, we're not, we're, we didn't kill them after, you know, really. We're just not going to insure them. Well, no, we're going we're to insure them. We're going to do it in a more affordable way that's controlled by the states if the Senate bill passes. It's, it's a really good bill from that, uh, for, from that standpoint for Republicans and conservatives. They ought to be happy about it. But the rhetoric is so amped up right now. And then Democrats turn these people loose and say, go protest, go resist, go disrupt. So I wasn't in the room. I wasn't in Todd Young's office. But it doesn't surprise me at all because this is orchestrated. It's happening all over the country. It's being and it's happening in a very aggressive, negative, almost violent way. Yeah. Randy, I think the building does have an impact, but it's not necessarily the one that you're describing. I think, if anything, because it is a federal building uh, occupied worse. by, it's, you should actually, building. you should give uh, the benefit of the doubt to the protesters. It is the people's house. They paid for it. And these, as Mike suggested, are elected officials put in office to heed the wishes of their constituents. Um, and as far as the, the mar there's a United Airlines has a new handbook on how to deal with, yeah. with these things. Maybe they could get copies like, of that. That's why I like, Joe, Donnelly's, that's why I like Joe Donnelly's office, because you can walk up right to the front door and protest everything he's doing, like right to his face. And why not? Because <laughs> that's how I do. it doesn't matter whether people are, you know, directed to protest or not. Protest is part of the process. And I think Mike, Mike Leppard's point about sometimes you have to take it, that's what you signed up for, and I think that that's important to remember. Republican State Senator Mike Delf had some eyebrow-raising comments about the upcoming U.S. Senate race this week. In an interview with Howie Politics, Delf, who's flirting with a Senate bid, as he has before without any payoff, says he doesn't think it's beneficial right now to be a sitting member of Congress and run for higher office. Indiana Congressman Todd Rakita and Luke Messer are both viewed as likely candidates to vie for the chance to challenge Democratic incumbent Joe Donnelly next fall. Delf, who says he'll make his own decision this fall about running, also noted he thinks no one in the Republican field right now will beat Donnelly. John Katzenberger, are Delf's assertions more about lining up his own run than anything else? Yeah. 
I mean, he's <laughs> certainly put the foundation down just like a mason lays down bricks. I mean, uh, I think it'll be interesting to see if he actually pulls the trigger because he's come to the post many times. Boy, am I mixing my metaphors. But he's, you know, he's come to the starting line many times and has yet to, to, to do that, to cross it in the race. So I'll be curious to see, but he certainly gave given every indication that that's his intention right now. Is there something to his argument that right now in the current climate, it isn't as beneficial to be a sitting member of Congress? Um there may be something to that. It's unfortunate if that's the case. I mean, I come from the, the old school that thinks that public service and elective office is actually an honorable thing. So it's a shame that. If, well, you hold the minority <laughs> opinion. Oh, I already said we need more lawyers in the General point. Assembly. I'm, I'm going for the hat <laughs> trick. Give me one more unpopular stance. But of course, right now, it's easy to criticize the swamp, Washington. I mean, it's this is the odd duck career where. You know, if you have a resume where you have a lot on it, you're almost disqualified, it seems. It's a black mark. Um, so there may be some, uh, with some portion of the electorate, there may be some sense that uh, anybody, the scoundrels who were in D.C. and had been there deserve to be thrown out and yeah. rather than being, quote-unquote, promoted. Does Mike Delph have a point? Well, one, I think. Uh, Joe Donnelly's got a record to defend, too. So he comes into the general election as an incumbent member of Congress uh, as well. So if it... If the, the rate, and we're going to have a lot more candidates, I believe, in this uh, Senate race on the Republican side. Um, but if, if it's Congressman Messer or Congressman Rakita, I mean, they're going to both have to go defend their own records. And Joe Donnelly's record is one that Democrats have been losing on in Indiana for three straight cycles. Except for the cycle that he won. Um, so uh, I think that Donnelly is going to be hard to knock off whoever, whoever it is. One thing that I will say about my, my pal, uh, Senator Delph, is that, uh, and he does share this in common with, with Senator Donnelly, is that they are driven by constituent services. And so one of the things that they both hang their hat on every day is, I'm here to help you. And, uh, and I used to live in Senator Delft's district, and, and he has got a, a great case to be made in that regard. So he's, he's good to his constituents, and Senator Donnelly has taken that approach. It's, it's, the, it's the focal point of his office, and, and so uh, that would be an interesting race. Another Hoosier is headed to Washington. This time it's Health Commissioner Jerome Adams. President Trump this week announced he's nominated Indiana Health Commissioner Jerome Adams as U.S. Surgeon General. Adams has led the Indiana Department of Health for Governors Mike Pence and Eric Holcomb. The anesthesiologist and IU Med School grad has helped push Indiana towards addressing the drug abuse epidemic as a medical problem rather than a criminal one. He's been an advocate for the county needle exchange programs. Governor Holcomb praised Trump's choice, calling Adams a, quote, dedicated champion for health and wellness. Mike Leppard, what kind of effect do you think Jerome Adams can have on the national level? Uh, you know, under normal circumstances, this is a big deal. Uh, the, the question, I think, uh, that, that immediately popped into my mind when the decision was made um, this week was, uh, who, who does the president listen to? Um, should he listen to someone like Jerome Adams? Yes. Will he? Doubtful. Uh, so uh, the, the position is significant in, under normal circumstances. We don't have those. So uh, I'm a little pessimistic that he's going to move the needle much. Could Jerome Adams arguably have more impact here in Indiana than he could at the, in that particular role at the federal level? No. I, I mean, he's certain general, right? So, I mean, he, he, what kind of leash he's on or what, he, what, what kind of flexibility he has to go, to go speak is, is a legitimate question, and it's a legitimate question for the entire administration. So far, we've seen actually pretty, a pretty active administration in terms of the, you know, look at Seema Burma, some of the other Hoosiers who have been out there. Yeah. They really have made a big impact. Particularly on health policy. Um, and Jerome Adams, when he was here, recall, did have 
uh, then Governor Pence's ear um, on some positions that really weren't lockstep with the Republican base. It's, it's really what he makes of it or what he's allowed to make of it. I mean, we've had uh, Surgeon Generals in this country where I think their name ID would be lower than, well, negligible, let's say. And then and you then have others, C. Everett Coop, C. Everett Coop who, uh, who, <laughs> chose, who was a household word, you know, and he probably for, signed, for autog reason or another, signed yeah. autographs right. when he would go out. So it's really what do you, you determine what you make of it or... Do you, think, do you think he can have an impact? You know, I think to John's point, um, the, the fact that the Surgeon General is generally not, you know, the highest position uh, and probably won't get in the spotlight of the president that often and that he has the ear of the vice president, I think he has real potential. All right. And finally, Governor Eric Holcomb's dog Henry, the so-called first dog of Indiana, gave his first on-the-record interview this week with Dan Cardin of the Times in Northwest Indiana. Mike O'Brien, who's cuter, Henry or Mike Pence's new puppy, Harley? I'd go for the first town for Holcomb, Henry. Oh, I think I think you've bipartisan, got your own pitch. Bipartisan dogs. That's a good-looking uh, nonpartisan birdie. Is, birdie is the dog of the year, right there. <laughs> my, my dog Rosie watches the show. I will not betray her trust and pick either of these dogs. As cute. <laughs> Rosie thinks Dan Cardin's awful cute. Well, I've heard her. I've heard her whisper to something to that effect. That was quite an interview. One of them, the, the best Twitter, the, the best, the best Twitter. 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 I have a dog named Reagan. She's a judicial activist. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. 1984. <laughs> That's Indiana Week in Review for this week. Our panel is Democrat Mike Leppert, Republican Mike O'Brien, John Schwannis of Indiana Lawmakers, and John Katzenberger of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. If you'd like a podcast of this program, you can find it at wfyi.org slash iwir, or starting Monday, you can stream it or get it on demand from Xfinity. I'm Brandon Smith of Indiana Public Broadcasting. Join us next time, because a lot can happen in an Indiana week. Ice Miller is proud to support Indiana Week in Review. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com.